I'm right in saying that I read something this week about, is it 0.7% of GDP that this government gives was first suggested by the church in the 1950s. And so you think, wow, the church is great to be able to have a voice and to feel like it's being heard, and we want to stand up for that. Right, we're going to have a little bit of interaction this morning. I'm going to say a word, and you're going to tell me the opposite. The first word that we're going to think of, so I'd like everyone just to shout it out. Anna's got that. You're going to tell me the opposite of this one. Left. Simple, isn't it? Beautiful. Success. War. Happy. Positive. North. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel I'm quite opposite to the society that I live in. I can feel quite different. I, I, another thing that's been in the news this week has been the whole thing about same-sex marriage. I, I personally believe that marriage is from God and it's one man and one woman. I can suddenly think, oh, God, I feel quite different. I don't know if you feel different, if you feel opposite to the society in which you live in. I honestly believe that life is a precious gift from God. And so I find it tragic that we would have bought so many babies in this country. I believe that as Christians, we're about the common good. And I can find it a challenge in a society that is obsessed with itself. I believe nudity is a gift for marriage. And I can find it shocking that how many people will use pornography for self-gratification. I think that I can feel opposite to the society in which I live. I, I follow God who says give, but so often we're around people that want to take. I believe that the Bible says we're about community, whereas actually so often we're about our own independence. What about you? How do you feel? I was thinking about this in terms of films by way of introduction, and sometimes I think, am I just living in the wrong era? Am I a little bit like Back to the Future? You know what I'm saying? Suddenly I realize that I'm in the wrong place, and that maybe if I lived 30 years ago, it would feel a bit more me, a bit more Christian. Has the society just changed? And then I thought, actually, if I had to think about myself as a film, it wouldn't be, you can tell my age, it would be E.T. You see, if you want to know what aliens look like, I would encourage you to turn and look at the person next to you. That's funny, isn't it? We always say the church is a lovely place and there's nice people, aren't there? No, go on, have a look around. You don't know what an alien looks like? There's one there right next to you. Now, why am I saying all of this? Why? Because the letter that we're going to look at in 1 Peter was written to a church that felt at odds with the community in which they lived. Peter was writing, it was about 30 years after Jesus had risen from, from the dead, the tomb was empty. It had gone to heaven about 30 years later. Peter's writing to this church and saying, actually, guys, you probably feel a bit odd with those around you. You probably feel a bit different. You probably feel that you don't quite fit in. These are some of the words that he wrote. We're going to be looking at this over the next six weeks, and we're going to start this week. 1 Peter 1, and I'm reading for verse 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. 
Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Sometimes, isn't it, you just sort of weed through a sentence. You think, man, do I really believe what I've just read? Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now... For a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look in to these things. Father, we do believe this is your word for today. We believe it's the living holy word of God. I pray as we take a look into this book of 1 Peter, I pray that you speak to us, stir us, challenge us, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not saying I always do this, but it came very clearly to me this week that all three points begin with the letter S. I'm just going to admit that up front, and I'm just going to keep getting you involved. So the first one is strangers. Could you say that? Strangers. Look around, you're in a bunch of strangers. You see, this is the term that Peter uses. He says, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout the provinces. He doesn't just say it here at the beginning. I'm not trying to make too much of the one point. If you look further through in the epistle, as it's called, it says in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here. So, you know, I'm talking to everyone here. If you're a Christian, you're a foreigner. You're a stranger. He goes on to say in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war on your soul. I, and this probably seems a bit, you know, I sort of think, God, what if people actually hear this? What if they actually believe this? I was thinking, does he really mean the word stranger? Some of you will be aware that there's different sort of translations of the Bible, really. So I thought, let's have a little look at some of the others. What kind of words might they use? The ESV 
English Standard Version calls it an exile. If you're a Christian, you're an exile here on earth. The Good News Version calls you a refugee. Young's calls you a sojourner. And the NASB says you're an alien. What they all basically mean is that if you are a Christian, you have temporary resident in a foreign place. Temporary. I mean, that's a, a, a huge shift in the way we think, isn't it? Some of you know that I lived abroad for a one year. And when you suddenly live abroad, you suddenly think, golly, everything seems slightly different. It's not quite at home. Some of you, I know, you think, well, I wasn't born here. And you just think, yeah, the, play, you know, the English, they're just a little bit odd. You, know, you can feel that when you're living in a place that's not quite your home. You think, well, they, they, they say the same things, but they mean something completely different. You know, it's almost like we, we, we talk about the same kind of food, but it just smells different or tastes different. You see, when you're a foreigner somewhere, that's what you experience. As Christians, Peter is writing to the church and says, that's how you should feel. So what he's really saying is, this earth is not your home, heaven is. The constitution of this land should not govern you. The Bible should. The queen, despite having been on the throne for 60 years, is not the one we bow before, that Jesus the king of kings is. The treasures that we're interested in are not the ones on this earth that can moth and rust destroy, but actually eternal treasures in heaven. It's suddenly a whole different way of thinking, isn't it? It says here, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered. Now, I thought it was quite interesting. He's just trying to explain to the church what this was like. You see, it was called the dysphoria. And basically, the Jews had been scattered all around the world. And so when Peter was writing, and I know this was just about the Jews, but there was only about a million Jews in what we consider the, the promised land. And there was about two to four million of them that were all around the world. And they had this idea, this is where the word scattered came from, that at one time they would all gather back together. So it's almost like well, you're living all over the place. It's not your home. One day he takes this picture and says, this is what it's like as a church. You know what the Jews are like? They're spread like that. Well, actually, that's what it's like for you guys. This is not your home. We're scattered. He even uses this word, which I found interesting, sprinkled by his blood. Peter is just trying to describe to the church, this is what you're like. Well, some of you will say to me, oh, well, I know what that is. The sprinkling of the blood, that was the Old Testament, wasn't it? You know, when they basically used to take this animal and kill it like this and take the blood, they used to sprinkle it. They rarely sprinkled it on people. Where did they sprinkle the blood? On the altar. There's only three times it's recorded as being sprinkled on the people. One was at Sinai when they got the covenant. It was basically being you're set apart. Yet you're committed to God. They sprinkled on the people. The second time was when Aaron and his sons were entered into the priesthood. There was almost this sense of, actually, you're going to be set apart. You're going to be these priests. And the third time that the Bible records about sprinkling blood on people was if you were declared to be cured from leprosy. Now, leprosy was something where you went around shouting, unclean, unclean, separate, separate. So all three images of this sprinkling were this sort of separate people. 
a separated group. And in some respect, this is what Peter is trying to write to them. He's trying to say, well, actually, you guys, you're foreigners. You're aliens. So you may find things a bit difficult in this life. I don't know about you. You know, sometimes I can I start think, I think, why doesn't everyone want to listen to what the church says? But actually, the Bible would say, because you're an alien, because you're a stranger, because you're a foreigner. You see, I think historically, and if you looked at the church in this country, historically, the church has been really important. I mean, I come from a small town in Sussex. And if you know anything about small towns in Sussex, you know there's two things that are really important to them. The pub and the church. And so people used to build their villages literally around the pub and the church. That was you know, the center of society. And we've grown up in this country with almost this kind of approach to society. We expect the church to be in the center. In the 2011 census, so that was a couple of years ago, 63% of this country claimed to be Christian. 63%. I know this is a long time ago and nobody here was from there, so you can't question it. And I found it out this week. In 1851, just over 100 years ago, one in four of the church, uh, one in four of the country were churchgoers. But now it's only one in 10. And they reckon by 2020, it'll only be one in 24. So they're saying in this country, the shift has been that it used to be masses that went to church. But actually, literally within eight years, if the trend continues, it could be 4%. So therefore, actually, what it's saying is that as Christians, I guess we can feel a little bit on the edge of society. And we can suddenly think, oh, golly, that doesn't quite seem right. And I think, let's be, I, I saw Question Time. I've never really watched Question Time. I watched it this week, one evening. And they said, oh, but this is the Church of England. And so I said, well, who's the Church of England? I mean, could we care less about them? You know what I'm saying? It's almost like they're right on the edge of society. And that can be quite a shock. Tear Fund. Edward was banging on about them earlier. Did a report in 2007. They reckon 70% of people have no intention of going to church in the near future. 70%. So therefore, you could say that almost our society is becoming less and less church-focused, less and less God-interested. I'm never quite sure how they determine these things, but I read in a book this week that Europe is now the world's most secular continent. Europe is the world's most secular continent. And if people are going to look for help from God, they might not think about going to church. They might think of seeking spiritual help through a therapist, a self-help book, or a sect. Lyndon Bowring, who is the, um, I think it's the chair of the Christian Action Research and Education, it's called CARE, says this, the greatest challenge is the growing secularization of society, where Christianity is becoming increasingly squeezed out of our national life. The ultimate result of this tendency will be a society that is hostile to Christian truth and practice. And for years, it's almost like, well, we said, oh, well, we're Christian, and we think everyone's going to think that's a great idea and listen to it. And we said our society's built on the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, well, actually, it's getting pushed further and further to the side. Maybe we relate to Peter more and more. If you know church history, you know that literally within years of Peter writing this, 
Nero was to burn down Rome and blame the Christians. And so they persecuted the Christians. At, at this time, they reckon it was just a bit of malicious talk. Now, this can seem a bit depressing. I'm just trying to be realistic. In a post-Christian society, I believe that the church and Christians, that's us, we end up moving from the center of society to the margin. It used to be that we're right in the heart of what was going on, and it's now that we're held on the edge. I believe that in a post-Christian society, that the church and us will move from the majority to the minority. Yeah, it used to be a time where you say, oh, everyone knew this. Everyone grew up knowing the Bible stories or the Ten Commandments. I believe that there is a whole attitude amongst us that we move from those that were, were the settlers that were shaped here to feel like strangers in our culture. I think that the church moves from a place of privilege. You know, so like even now, people say, why have we got so many bishops in the Lords? You know what I'm saying? There's a historical privilege of the church. I think there will be a place of plurality. Actually, we'd be one voice amongst many. People say, well, I think this, and I think this, and oh, yeah, oh, that's all very good. I think the church will move from a place of control to a place of witness. So it used to be we could shape things, and now we've just got to say, well, this is the God I know. And people will be impressed by the things that we do. I think the church can move, which I think is a positive thing, from maintenance, how do we keep the status quo going, to a place of mission. I think the church will move out of a sense of institution into a sense of movement. I think there's some hope in it. I'm not trying to be down on it all. I guess what I'm just trying to say is, do you see yourself as an alien, as a stranger? Do you look at yourself in the morning? Don't answer this one out loud because it will embarrass you and think, man, I'm odd. Look at the person looking back at me. What a funny kind of person they are. You know, I'm, Well, I think biblically, how do we understand this? There is some hope coming. Stick with me. But I think this is the challenge. Biblically, the people of God have been strangers and aliens. If you look right through the Bible, and, and that's the thing, we have to look at the big story. So you think about Abraham. I mean, he had nowhere even to bury his own wife. It tells us in Genesis 23, he says, I'm a foreigner and a stranger amongst you. Sell me some property because I want to bury it. We know when the laws came in Leviticus that they said, actually, love other people because you were once foreigners in Egypt. There's almost understanding this, this picture. John Piper, I don't know if you've heard of him. He, I think he's just recently retired, led a church in the United States. He says this, Living as aliens in this world is the only pathway to heaven. Living as aliens in this world is the only pathway to heaven. In fact, you even think about Hebrews. If you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you probably know that it's this book about faith and, and there's this, um, this long list of all these people that did these amazing things. And it tells us in Hebrews 11:13, all these people were living by faith when they died. It's gone through a big list. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. You see, you must be strange because we took an offering and, and you're saying, great, let's give. That's strange, isn't it? Because most of us have got things we could spend the money on. Isn't that a strange thing to do? 
strange thing to say, oh, I welcome anyone into my home. Isn't it strange to say, well, actually, sex is just for marriage? If you think about the way we live, you think, golly, this is strange, isn't it? Chester and Timis have written this book, found very helpful looking at this. I've quoted them several times. Being members of another kingdom makes us outsiders here on earth. Our faith makes us strangers in our own land. Did you expect to come to church today and be told you're a stranger, you're an alien, and you're foreign? No. Because I think sometimes we forget how radical this book really is. You probably thought, I'm going to come to church and Pete's going to tell me something really nice and I'm going to go away and feel good about myself for the week. And I want you to go away and think, I'm an alien and a stranger. And in fact, I think we probably need to develop that. And here I would even say, sometimes we forget it. How do we develop it? I'm I'm not going to go long into this. We're going to move on. I think if we pray, it keeps us focused upon the king and the kingdom we're really about. That's why prayer is so good for us. I think when we express our love, it shows what we really value. I think when we're hospitable, and I think Peter would talk all about this in the book if I had time to go through it, and he's just saying, actually inviting people to your home, it's showing that actually I'm not living for the here and now. I'm not looking to have this model home. I'm looking to be part of this community. I think even when we serve, what it says is actually, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not living for the things of this world, I'm living for him. So we get this word come earlier, don't we? We must decrease, that he must increase, basically, is what, what John the Baptist was saying, wasn't it? And that's almost this, this picture very much here, isn't it? So the first word is stranger. Everyone say stranger. Uh, is it second word? Suffering. I slipped a couple of extra S's in along the way. Sprinkling was in there, scattered was there, but, you know, I'm trying to, you know, it's just three S's. This is all we've got to remember. The first one, stranger. The second one is suffering. You see, let's be honest. If you've ever watched, has anyone watched E.T. or is it just me banging on about something? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a sort of Christmas film, isn't it? You know, that kind of thing. You know, suddenly E.T. turns up on the planet and, oh, what is this? You know what I'm saying? Let's try and plug him in. Let's try and, you know, they, they sort of welcome him and give him this great meal. They want to chop him up, don't they? They want to try and understand what kind of odd person have I got here? And now I'm not trying to build a theology on E.T. this morning. I do want it to come out of the Bible. But I guess what it does mean is that actually Peter writes to the church and says, look, you are strangers here and you will expect to suffer. He says this, doesn't he? In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief of all trials. I was saying earlier, if you read through the book, and and it says in 2.12, they accuse you of doing wrong. So we don't think that Christians were being burnt at this point, but they were accused of doing wrong. It says in 2.15, silence the ignorant talk of foolish Men. So basically, people were talking in a negative way about the church. It says in 3 verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. So we think actually the Christians were being insulted at the time and maybe having evil put against them. It says in 1 Peter 3 verse 16, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. The church were obviously being slandered. So this is what he's writing to. Could I just say, and I'm I'm sure it wouldn't apply to any of us, 
You know, suffering is not when we don't get a parking space when we pray for one. You know what I'm saying? Oh, God, give me a parking space. I'm on the fifth floor. God, I am suffering for the gospel today. You know what I'm saying? I think sometimes that's what I call inconvenience. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we can pray about things, can't we? And we don't get it straight away. And we can think, oh, I'm really suffering for the gospel. Now, I think suffering is well beyond inconveniences. I think we've probably seen several things on the telly this week, even about Syria and just some of the oppressive things that have been happening there. I read this week that 90% of those kidnapped in Syria are believers. 90% of those that have been kidnapped are believers because actually they are suffering for the gospel. That's what I would think of as suffering. I don't know how many of you have read the book, Lilies Amongst Thorns. It's probably about 20 years ago. It's about the church in China. They have a hymn that they sing there. Well, we've never taught it here. I doubt, if we did, I doubt if anyone would even sing it. They sing a verse on each of the apostles and the way that they died. They were martyred for the gospel. <laughs> oh, yes, he was beheaded. la di da di da Oh, yeah. You know, and it's almost like, because actually we recognize that when we follow Christ, we suffer. Some of you will know, somebody like uh, Open Doors, Brother Andrew, and just some of the stories that they, I get their emails each week. You just think, wow. I had the privilege to be involved in a conference in Holland. This was a few years ago, and they'd smuggled out about 400 believers from Iran and Iraq. Every single one knew someone who'd been martyred for the gospel. And sometimes we think, God, is that what I signed up for? The reality is, Christ himself suffered. In Isaiah, when he's prophesying, and he doesn't quite understand it about this future, he prophesies about this suffering servant. Jesus himself was shunned by society and nailed to a cross. Somebody's suffering now, they're trying to get a hold of us. <laughs> Jesus warned us that the world would hate us as it hated him. It says in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. It's strong stuff, isn't it, really? I did about you, you know, I mean, I, I, always, I, I want people to like me, I want them to welcome me, I want them to think positive of me. And so we're looking at 1 Peter, and what do I say? You're a stranger and you're to suffer. I guess I draw hope from Paul. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18, he says, Do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary trouble hang on light and momentary troubles here this is paul that's been shipwrecked that's been stoned that's been beaten that's been whipped our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary what is unseen is eternal. 
I think it's a huge challenge for us. I'll be honest myself, you know what I'm saying? We can, what, leaflet on a Saturday morning? No wonder you're preaching on suffering. I mean, I don't do Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock. No, no, this is nothing compared to what God has done for us. We could think of maybe inconvenience. We think, oh, golly, even getting involved in a smaller church. And I know Pete's going to be asking me to put the chairs out or to serve on this. Oh, golly, it can feel inconvenient. No, no, this is nothing. And it's almost like when we're called to follow him, we are strangers in this land and we can expect to suffer. Someone say, Pete, please don't put this one on the website. You know, we're trying to grow the church, not reduce it. I just want us to be biblical. I think, how do we, how do we handle this? I, I would love to give you something that would say, hey, look, look touch my Bible and, and everything's you know, restored for you. Touch it. You know what I'm saying? Touch it, you can lose weight. Touch it and you can grow it a foot taller. Touch it and your golf swing improves. You know what I'm saying? But I, I can't. I've got to say, look, touch it and encounter the living God and see what he says. And that's what we want to do this morning, isn't it? Chester and Tim's, uh, Tim, as I was saying, quoted them, we've become outsiders just as Jesus was an outsider. We are marginal in our culture because Jesus was marginal. So we are strangers and we suffer. Right, third S. This one, come on, we could shout this one. Salvation. Third S. You see, I think that actually, and this is the good news of this book, there are 105 verses in this book, and 21 times the name of Jesus is mentioned. Because actually, if you had to look at this church that were facing trials, that were facing difficulties, that had a malicious talk about them, that were were being slandered, what Peter said is, remember this, your salvation. This is almost like the golden thread that runs through it. You know, we talk about being born again. I mean, it's almost, he says here, this new birth. You know, I mean, you've got three sermons for the price of one this morning because reality is I could have preached the whole one, if we're really honest, about suffering. We could have preached a whole sermon, couldn't we, about being strangers. We could preach a whole series on being saved. And I wish we could pick it out. Verse 3, it says, you are born again to a living hope. If you're a Christian, if you're saved, you have got hope. You said, Pete, you, you just told me I'm an alien and I'm suffering. Pick up the whole picture. You've got hope. It says in verse 4, you have an inheritance that cannot perish. Oh, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing, amazing, eh? I was chatting to a friend just this week. He said, I've just had the car MOT'd in service and it blew up on the motorway. Take it to the garage and he says, it's, it's useless. Oh, you know what I'm saying? You, think, you, you spend so much money on these rust buckets, don't you? And then they just disappear and leave you. Our inheritance is not like that. Our inheritance with God is not just going to blow up one day and oh, we just leave it beside the road. Our inheritance with God is something that's kept in heaven for us. Verse 3 talks about living hope. Verse 4 talks about inheritance cannot perish. Verse 5 talks about you have a divine protector. God Almighty is on your side. So you're talking all about this. I tell you what, my confidence is in God, not in me. My confidence is in him. In verse 6 and 7, it talks about how God is developing and strengthening our faith. In verse 8, it talks about the unseen Savior that is standing right beside us. In verse 9, it talks about the guaranteed deliverance that we have. One day we will be with him forever. 
So you say to me, Pete, this seems a bit of a pessimistic thing. I tell you, I am not pessimistic for two reasons. One, this. He says, God's elect. What does that mean? They were chosen by God. God is our Father. What does it matter if the whole world thinks I'm an alien? If God is my Father. I mean, I'm chosen by God. I'm adopted by God. I'm delighted in by God. I'm accepted by God. I bet next Sunday, Leon, who's now slipped out, and a nosh, you know what I'm saying? These first-time dads, Jamie, they're just going to be spoiled rotten, aren't they? You know, it's almost like, what a privilege, a dad, have a kid. First ever Father's Day. I mean, you only have to look at them, don't you? I mean, I, I bet with Leon. Leon works as an electrician, I know that. Diver's just had this little kid for three months. I bet she does all the nappy changing. And Leon gets home and just cuddles him. You know what I'm saying? Leon buys the toys, takes him to play football. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the father's privilege, isn't it? It's just this enjoyment. We are loved by God as our father. I was going to say he gets home from work. It's not quite that. The, the illustration's limited. But he just wants to pick us up, enjoy us. I thought it was so helpful when Richard was talking yesterday about, you know, we can be holding God's hand and walking along the street. And every so often he just wants to pick us up in his arms and say, I love you. I thought, yeah, that's true, isn't it? So I'm telling you this. You are an alien and you're a stranger. And I want to promise you this. You are to suffer because I think that is it. But I also wanted to reassure you of this, that God is your Father. So why do I have hope? I don't have hope in myself. I don't have hope in the world that they're going to necessarily like me or listen to me. But I'm confident in God. I'm confident in Him. I'm also confident in His gospel. So, you know, you might say, oh, Pete, you, you painted a black picture of the church. It's almost like it's, it's drifting to the side of society. It's in the margins. It's not really involved. I, I, I don't actually feel like that. I feel very optimistic about the church. I think there's lots of churches that are being started or planted all over the country. Praise God for that. If you uh, know anything about Alpha, you know, is it 20-something million people have done the Alpha course? It's not just a few folk on a Wednesday night in Costa, although it is great, do come along. I think what I'm really saying is, this is an amazing thing. Millions are being changed around the world for it. I, th- I look at church unity. I've seen more unity, I think, in the church in the recent years than ever before. I meet together with other ministers of Ealing. Fantastic. I went along to the leadership conference at Holy Trinity Brompton with Nicky Gumble, and you think they've got a cardinal on the platform. You know what I'm saying? You think, let's put it all together. I know that Chris, who's pulling together the food bank, and we will be talking more about that later, has already got on the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Roman Catholics, and that fruity bunch called Redeemer. You know what I'm saying? You think, man, if we could pull all that lot together, who knows what God can do? Chester and Timothy say this, the gospel is still the power of God for salvation. The Lord's arm is not too short that it cannot save. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. Christ will build his church. That is my confidence. We believe that, don't we? Come on, we should have more than one amen for something like that, shouldn't we? The Holy Spirit is alive and well. Christ will build his church. 
So in concluding, I want to say this. There's three words that I try to bring out of this first little bit that we're looking at in 1 Peter. We are strangers. I think actually the biblical way is suffering often comes. I think suffering precedes the glory. I think that's a biblical pattern. But I'm confident in a God who saves. Sometimes I think our danger is that we can almost be, dare I say, so prophetically minded that we think about the peaks and the hills. What do I mean? We know that Jesus died on Calvary, and we think that is a great peak. It's almost like he went up the hill. It's a high point, isn't it? I know people think it's strange. He died why he died for my sin. I think that's the mountaintop, the way I look at it. And we know this, that he will come back one day. So the Mount of Olives is the picture that the Bible uses. And I think our danger is that we can think Christianity is just about two mountaintop experiences and forget that there's often a valley in between. And I think what has happened here is that Peter is writing to the church and saying, yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, one day he will return. There are two mountaintops there. But the harsh reality is, Monday to Friday, <laughs> you know, this year till next, there can be a valley in between. And this is almost him saying, come on, how do we keep going? Now, I don't think that means we've got nothing to say to society. I think, and I'll end with this quote, just like Chester and Timmis, we, like our saviour before us, can be marginal, yet truly world-changing. That's what I love about like an if campaign. You know, you could say, oh, well, the church is more and more marginal. But I think, golly, if we saw 20 million people, kids have food. When, when do you start thinking that's life-changing? You know what I'm saying? I think surely what have we got to believe is the gospel is great news. The gospel will make a radical difference. And we might not feel that we're right in the center of society. And we might feel that society makes decisions that maybe years ago we'd have thought, oh, you wouldn't have done that because you'd have, you'd have taken the Bible or the church much more central. I still believe we've got a role to make a difference. I believe that surely the church is here that we will impact healing and London with God's bride. That's why I think it's great that this morning we're going to be taking the bread and the wine together. Because actually, I think we have hope. Yeah, life can be tough. And I'm not trying to stand in and say, oh, everything's smooth. But I am confident in the one who saved us. And so I know Sandra is now going to come and lead us. And I know Richard will be playing as we come and celebrate what Jesus has done and the difference it makes for us.